Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Jim, thanks so much. You had to bring up that firing, but okay, no big deal. You know, the rest of the stuff you were saying, it was so nice, Jim. And I must tell you, as you were saying all those kind things about me, I was thinking the same thing. So that was great. We, that was good. You know, it's a great pleasure for me to be here with all of you. Uh, and to be here at the Fort Worth Club, at the World Affairs Council, uh, the Fort Worth Press. It's my pleasure to have the opportunity to be with you uh, today and talk a little bit about what's going on. In a way, I'm so surprised to be here in so many ways, surprised that people would, in fact, welcome me uh, knowing that I'm a proud employee of Fox News. <laughs> there are people who would have questions about that. And of course, it hurts me uh, to no end to understand exactly how difficult it can be uh, to find yourself in a situation where the boss of the company questions your psychiatric state, uh, questions your mental stability, and also thinks that maybe you need a publicist because you can't string two words together. Uh, but that was the odd situation I found myself in uh, just last October. It came as a shock to me. Today is a wonderful day, as I said, it's a pleasure to be with all of you because all of you are, especially as I was meeting people in the reception here today, so open, so warm, so receptive. I can't tell you. You know, normally I'm accustomed to people coming up to me, especially here today, and saying That's, it's great to put a face with the body uh, because they hadn't seen me on TV before, I guess. Used to be that with the NPR crowd, people would say to me, it's good to be able to put a voice with the face, to which I would say to them, I didn't know what you look like either. It's a big surprise <laughs> to me. So it's a big surprise. But this is, you know, again, just a wonderful opportunity to have conversation and to talk, and of course, to be in Fort Worth. You guys think it's hot here, huh? Well, we've had a lot of hot here in Washington recently, I tell you that, an extreme. And of course, I'm gonna enjoy the idea that it's a lot cooler here than it is in Washington where we had one of the coldest winters. People oftentimes say to me, how cold was it in Washington last winter? To which I reply, it was so cold that the politicians were walking around with their hands in their own pockets. It was that cold, it was freezing. <laughs> but one of the joys about this group, and I've been looking forward to that, is that we're going to have time for some question and answer, for some exchanges here. And you've invited the perfect guest to have this kind of Q&A because I'm trained as a journalist, and journalists these days, you should be aware, are trained to keep it short. Keep it short. In fact, we once had an intern when I was working at the Washington Post, and it was around 7 o'clock at night when we put the first edition to bed. And we said to the young man, hurry up, it's going to cost money, but hurry up, go ahead and 
write that obituary. The family will appreciate seeing it in the first edition. And he went off to his computer, started typing, and the red light turned on on my computer in a flash to indicate there was a story waiting. And I thought, boy, this kid's just terrific. I pushed the button to see what he had written, and it read something like, John Jones looked up the open shaft to see if the elevator was coming. It was age 42. <laughs> so, you know, some people just aren't cut out for the business. You know, you just, you just understand that. So I was thinking about how to have this discussion with you this afternoon in a way that would be a little different. Um, and I thought to myself, well, you know, I used to be a talk show host. Um, and I thought, what if I did this in a, a format in which I was the talk show host and my guest, we could, I'll just begin, like this is the Juan Williams show, and our guest today is Juan Williams. And not only that, we're gonna not only have Juan Williams as our guest today, we're gonna take your calls. So I want you to get ready with all of your calls as you listen to us for the first part of the program. But I thought that we'd begin with an update on what happened to Juan Williams. So. Let me just ask Juan, what's he doing now? So now I shift hats and personas. You have to join in this act of imagination with me. And so I would reply to my host. I'd say, well, now I work for Fox News. Um, and I also write a column for foxnews.com and another column for The Hill. Uh, and I just published a book about the experience of being, I think Jim said, unceremoniously put out, fired uh, by NPR, but the book is really about how difficult it is to have an honest discussion in this country today. And then I imagine that the host, now switching back, would say, well, let me ask you something. For those listening who don't know how this all got started, how did you find yourself in this situation? To which Juan Williams, the guest, would say, you know, I tell you, I wake up some days even now, and it's hard for me to believe that I'm in this situation, identified publicly as the guy who got fired from NPR for being a bigot, the guy who was told, you know, the, the boss of the company says you're mentally unstable. I just, it's unbelievable to me that after my career, I'm in this situation. But to directly reply to your question, how did this get started, as usual, it was my pal, Bill O'Reilly, who got me into this. <laughs> because I was minding my own business when he tells me one day he's going on The View. And I said, well, that's always good fun for you. You know, it's always like four or five against one except for Elizabeth Hasselbeck. And he says, oh, not to worry. He's got this, you know, well, I don't know. You don't know him like I know him, but he's a pretty confident man. Let me say that. <laughs> and so off he goes to The View. The next thing I hear is, because I was traveling, that O'Reilly, the two of the ladies walked off. I said, oh my God, what, what did he say? What did he say? Oh, I'm told he said Muslims attacked us on 9-11. And apparently, Whoopi Goldberg and Joy Behar walked off the set. And I said, so how did this end? They said, oh, don't worry about it, Juan. Uh, they came back. He said that he was just talking about radical Muslims. And I said, okay. But next morning, next morning in the papers, it's all over as, you know, conservative, dominant, white male, Bill O'Reilly, gets into it with the liberal ladies on The View, 
and there's this big set too, and so it's, you know, it's in the papers, and I think, oh, well, enough of that. Uh, but the next Monday, I'm Bill's lead guest on the show. And he opens up by recounting what happened to him on The View, and then he says to me, he says, Juan, where was I wrong? And I said, Bill, I'm not going to play any politically correct games with you. The fact is, the people who attacked us on 9-11 were Muslims, and they cited their Islamic faith as a basis for the attack talking about jihad. I said, in fact, uh, the Times Square bomber just recently in court said that it's only the first drop of blood that we've seen in the war between Muslims and the United States. And, Bill, I'll tell you this too that when I'm in airports and I see people who are dressed in Muslim garb, to my mind, identifying themselves first and foremost as Muslims, I get nervous. It makes me uneasy. Uh, but you know, Bill, you have to be careful about how you speak about this thing. We as a country are dealing with the link between radical Islam, Islam and terrorism. But you know, we have to remember that we are a nation of religious liberty religious tolerance. We don't associate Christians solely with the acts of people like Timothy McVeigh or the Olympic bomber. We certainly don't think that all Christians are responsible for the kinds of rants that come out of the Westboro Baptist Church at military funerals. Um, and we don't want people burning the Koran in Florida by misinterpreting things that we say. So this is the conversation, uh, and that's it. Now back to Juan. The radio host. So Juan, the radio host, will turn to me and say, well, did you realize at that moment that you had said something that was potentially so explosive and offensive that it would lead to your firing? So Juan, the guest now, says, no. And, you know, to this day, you know, like you, they say you're in the shower and the shower facilitates you thinking about things that you've done or need to do. And given the business I'm in, I oftentimes think, Jesus, I shouldn't have said that, or I should have said it this way, or put it, should have put it that way. Instead, I have never to this day had such a moment with regard to what I said on Bill's show. To the contrary, when I was being fired, the woman who was firing me opened up the conversation on the radio by saying to me, the conversation on the phone by saying to me, what did you mean to say? And I said, oh, I said exactly what I meant to say. <laughs> and I think that really screwed her up, you know, because then she was like, well, are you going to apo apologize for what? I said what I meant to say. So I didn't realize that I had said anything offensive at all. Uh, in fact, I thought I had bared my soul in order to try to build a bridge that was beyond political correctness and say that we as Americans have to find a way to deal with Islam and its ties to terrorism in a constructive way without impinging on the liberties and rights of people who are good Muslims in our society. That's what I thought I had said. In fact, when you go back, any of you can go back and look at it, it's all over YouTube, you'll see that's what I said. So. I didn't know that I had done anything wrong. In fact, the next day I went off to give a speech in Chicago and people came up to me both at National Airport and at the speech in Chicago to say they had seen me on O'Reilly the night before and thanks, it was a really important conversation for us as Americans to be having at this point. 
Some people even refer to the fact that we are coming up on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 and we're still a much changed society and we're grappling with how we go about dealing with Islam and terrorism today. But the most interesting part was when I was coming back in the airport in Chicago, I was hungry. The flight was about to leave and I ran in to get a slice of pizza. And uh, a guy comes up to me and I'm, you know, I'm in public, I'm a public person, so I have to be polite, but I really just want the pizza and to get on the plane. But the guy's persistent and finally he says that he saw me on O'Reilly last night and he's a Muslim businessman in suburban Chicago and he wants to tell me a story. So I said, okay, but just understand, I'm trying to catch the plane. He said, okay, he says, but he was in his home office the other day and he was putting some papers in a paper shredder when his little boy, a 12-year-old, came in. And he says the 12-year-old looked at him and said, Dad, why are you destroying that envelope? Is it because it has Arabic writing on it and you don't want the neighbors to know that we're Muslims? And the father said he told his son, no, no, son, it's because it has the name of Allah on it and you don't just throw something like that out with the rest of the trash, you dispose of it appropriately. But he said the real import of this exchange for him was that his little boy was ashamed or thought there was shame to be attached to being Muslim. And he realized that he had to be more than just an ordinary suburban businessman, that he had to get involved in changing the image and political stance of Muslims in the United States and how much he appreciated the fact that I had said much of this last night on O'Reilly. So I say, well, thanks. It's a great story, but I really have to go bye-bye. So off I go. So when did you get fired, Juan? Well, you know what? So this is Tuesday. I made the comments on O'Reilly on a Monday night. Tuesday goes by. I'm in Chicago. I get home late. Uh, nothing. I don't know anything's going on. Next day, I have to go to New York, where Fox is headquartered. And as I'm going in, a friend calls who runs an advocacy group in Washington, and she says, I just want to know how you're bearing up under all the pressure. And I said, what pressure? What are you talking about? And she said, oh, the office is just being flooded with these emails calling for you to be fired. I said, for what? And she said, oh, what, over what you said on O'Reilly. I said, what did I say? And she tells me, and I said, look, you know what? People get mad at me all the time. People on the right get mad at me. People on the left get mad at me. Uh, it's just the way it is if your job is to analyze politics. People always have some reason to say, you know, you're a little bit off, you should have said this, and especially if I make a mistake, oh my God, you can't believe what you said. I said, don't worry about it. She said, oh, okay, take care. And off I go, and I go in and I'm doing TV uh, and meeting with people, and then around five o'clock, um, I realize that there's a message waiting on my cell phone, it's from my boss at NPR. So I call back. And that's when the conversation takes place. And not only did she want to know what I really meant to say, she also indicates there that what I said was bigoted uh, and that it violates NPR's standards for good journalists and that it makes it impossible for me to work there and that I'm fired. To which I said, this is crazy. I've worked there 10 years. I've been a host. I've been a senior correspondent. I've been your political analyst. Uh, I want to come in and at least talk about this face-to-face. -face. And she says, there's nothing you can say, nothing you can do 
to change our minds. This has been affirmed from the highest up, so we just want you gone. I was stunned. So back to being the radio host, I'd say, Juan, you were stunned. Well, what happened? What did you do next? And I said, well, in all honesty, I'm not sure what happened in my brain because all I remember is I answered some emails, I went out to eat Chinese food, and then I knew I had to be back to do Sean Hannity's show. Uh, but in between, I tried to reach my wife, she wasn't around, and I don't think I talked to anybody. The Chinese waiter and I discussed a book he was reading. <laughs> he says, wow. So then the, the host says, and then what happened next? And I said, well, so I went on Sean's show, and if you've ever seen me on Sean's show, you know that Sean and I scream at each other for much of the show. And it's a whole shouting match, and Sean's telling me that I'm a crazy person and all the rest. And so that night, uh, I, was, I walked off the set, and Sean's great American panel came on. Then Sean came off the set to ask me how the show, and I said, oh, it's fine, show, no problem. And then he says, you know, something's going on with you. What's wrong? And I said, what are you talking about? I said, the show was okay. He says, oh, no, don't, don't, don't do that. He says, something's wrong with you. What's going on? And I said, Sean, you know what? I got fired today. He said, fired from what? I said, well, not here. Fired from NPR. <laughs> and he says to me, why? What did you do? And so at that point then, he, he's usually running out the door. Remember, this is now 10 o'clock at night Eastern time is when his show goes off the air. So normally, everybody's like taking off makeup and running out the door. He likes pastrami sandwiches and all stuff. So he's off to go eat. And this time, instead, he sits down, which was unusual, and then says to me, wait, wait, tell me what happened. So I tell him what this woman said to me, that I'm a bigot, and that this, he says, this is unbelievable. Now we're talking, and this is going on for a good 15, 20 minutes. He stands up, we're in the uh, dressing room area uh, where we put makeup on, take makeup off, all that kind of stuff. And he grabs the phone off the wall and uh, starts making a call. I said, Sean, who are you calling? You know what time it is? And he says, hold on, hold on. And he gets someone on the phone. He says, no, wake him up. Wake him up right now. And I said, Sean, who are you talking to? And he says he's talking to Bill Shine's wife. Bill Shine runs the programming department at Fox News Channel. So he runs all the shows that are in prime time for the most part, like everything from O'Reilly to Hannity to Greta Van Susteren, uh, shows like that. So I said, he's sleeping. And his wife is saying, he's sleeping. <laughs> and, and, and Sean is saying, wake him up, wake him up. No, really, I need to talk to him right now. And then I hear Sean get on the phone and says, what is it? And uh, Sean says, they fired one, blah, blah, blah. And then I hear Bill Shine say, well, tell him not to say anything. We'll talk to him first thing in the morning. So then Sean says, don't you worry about this. We're going to take care of it. Don't you worry. I'm thinking, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> So I go back to the hotel room, because I'm not in the mood for pastrami, and I, and I really have trouble sleeping. I'm thinking to myself, this is a mess. And my cell phone erupts, because tens, turns out NPR has leaked the story, which was really my big fear, that they you know, have microphones everywhere, and they're going to portray me as this crazy bigot, uh, you know, a black guy making fun of Muslims and all this. And I just thought, this is sad. This is, you know, and how am I, how's my career going to recover? Didn't sleep, had a terrible night. I go on Fox and Friends in the morning, and when I get there, 
you know, everybody on the set is like, hey, what happened? It's all over the internet, it's all over, and I'm not answering any questions. I'm saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to talk about it. And they were so kind because they didn't press me on it. We just did the normal political thing. And then afterwards, I go up to the second floor where the executives are, and I go into Bill Shine's office, and he's coming out, and also Michael Clemente, who runs the news division at Fox, is coming out. And like with two guards, I'm escorted into the office of Roger Ailes, who runs Fox News. And Roger is not seated at his desk, but seated at a chair against the wall, and he looks like he's deep in thought, looking over some papers. And when I walk in, he says, hmm, you, we can't have you working here, can we? And I, and I thought, I hope he's joking. <laughs> and he said, oh, sit down, sit down. And then he says, we're going to rework your deal. Uh, you know, whatever you were, you're going to lose over there. I don't want you to have to go home to your wife and say you lost any money. We'll take care of that. And you're on our staff full time now. Don't, don't even worry about it. And then he said, I think the right is going to support you because they don't like being called bigots and racists every time they raise a point. He says, but I'm curious about how the left is going to react to this. So now back to being the radio talk show host. I'd say, Juan, so what did happen? How did the left react to this? And I'd say, you know, in fact, it was quite heartening. People like Whoopi Goldberg, Jon Stewart, people like that said, this is outrageous. You can't fire the man for what he said. Even people on MSNBC, which is no friend of Fox News, <laughs> said, this is outrageous. Now, there were exceptions. People like Rachel Maddow said, you know what? This isn't a matter of freedom of speech. Your employer can fire you for saying anything that they don't like. And they did not like what Juan Williams had to say. And then there were people like Andrew Sullivan at The Atlantic or the ombudswoman at NPR who said Juan Williams is black. Can you imagine what Juan Williams would say if there was a white guy walking down the street late at night and there were some rowdy teenagers, black kids, coming the other way, you know, their pants down, they're screaming and shouting. And that white guy said, you know, I'm scared. I don't like it. I, it makes me anxious and nervous, those black kids. And he crosses the street. Juan Williams would say, that guy's a bigot. Well, let me just tell you that I'm black. I live in a black neighborhood in a mostly black city, Washington, D.C. And that if I saw a group of rowdy black kids coming towards me late at night, I would be nervous and I'd cross the street. But nonetheless, this was, again, this was the line of attack. Now, this was coming from some people on the left, but not everyone on the left. In general, I was really heartened by the support. And once it became personal that all of a sudden I was mentally unstable and I was so simple-minded as to need a publicist to string a few words together, there was, again, more of this kind of outrage at what had happened. So Juan, what have you learned? What have you learned from all of this? Well, I think, you know what, I think our greatest scorn should be reserved for people not who are arguing and not who are in the arena and telling you what they feel, but I think it should be, our greatest scorn should be reserved for people who won't listen, for people who are intolerant, for people who are inflexible, for people who hold to a position so strongly that they don't understand the need for common ground, for compromise, for a willingness to say it's important for all of us to express 
our point of view, even as we make an effort to solve big problems and speak about those problems in American society. I think that's really true. And I'll tell you something else I've learned. I grew up at a time, and grew up in Brooklyn, New York, when Archie Bunker always was the guy on the right, the conservative. And I always associated that with rigidity, inflexibility. But today, after what I've been through, the shock for me in terms of what I've learned really comes down to how inflexible, intolerant, and orthodox people on the left can be once you vary from their line of thought, that they will punish you. And I'm just surprised at how much this has become standard fear in America today, how difficult it is to have an honest discussion, to have an honest debate. And so if I was the talk show host, I'd say, well, now on, it's time for the listeners to have their turn. It's time for the calls, so please, Let's go at it. But thanks you so much for listening. <laughs> Looks like we have microphones. Go right ahead. Yeah. So here's, here's the question. And I'm going to go back to something that... Uh, my father, who's passed, used to say to me, he said, always know who you're dealing with, and the only way to do that is to have an honest conversation. And I don't think that a lot of people on both sides are ready for a truly honest conversation. So my question to you is, what form needs to be created for that kind of dialogue to exist? Because I don't think it, it can exist by itself on the right or on the left. Right, uh, and this is interesting to me because at the moment, if you, given what happened in Washington over the last months of, over the, with regard to the budget and raising the debt ceiling, I think we've seen a prime illustration of the failure to have honest discussion. You have people on the left who are reluctant to talk about the need to cut entitlements if we're serious about debt reduction, and you have people on the right who say, I'm not even considering any increase in taxes, revenues, that spending's out of control, and it's totally not a revenue issue. And if you simply stick to these positions, what you get is paralysis. And suddenly, the best interest of the country, even the best economic interest, lost, frozen. Part of this has to do, I think, with the fact that if you're on the right or on the left, your biggest opponent in terms of holding office is not going to come from anyone in the middle. It's coming from someone who will say, I'm more conservative than you are or I'm more liberal than you are. And also, that if you say obnoxious things, bumper sticker type things, if you scream at the president, you lie, uh, for example, all of a sudden your base gets exercised and you get more money. So you are rewarded for being extreme. As Congresswoman Gifford said before she was shot, there's no reward for being reasonable, trying to compromise, being in the middle. No one even wants to hear about you. The rewards are at those extremes. And when you asked me, you said, well, where is the form that could allow for reasonable people to say, you know what, yes, I do get nervous in airports, or yes, I understand that we have a debt problem and we're going to have to work together to get it solved. We're not going to just waste time and push to the edge and weaken investor confidence in our economy. Where could that take place? It's very difficult, even on something like economic news. 
because we live in a niche media environment where more often than not people go to scenes to to a station or a program that affirms a pre-existing political point of view or a pre-existing opinion. People don't go to hear the other point of view often. And sad to say, but the people in my business, we think, you know what, it's risky to have someone there to present the other point of view at times. And so what you get is simply people pounding one point of view or the other point of view. Now, for all that's said negatively about Fox News, I hope that you notice I'm there. And that people that you might say, well, gee, Sean is so far right. Yeah, without a doubt. But you'll notice Sean also has me on and goes head to head, and his audience seems to value it. Now, to me, this would be an indication that there should be more places where you can get both sides of the story that it's valued, and that people are not as silly or dumb as some of us who produce news think, that they want, in fact, the whole story. But it's becoming very difficult to find such a forum today. It's, it's difficult to get people into an environment where you don't simply scream, crazy right winger, how dare you say that, or bleeding heart liberal, I know where you're coming from, Instead, to say, you know what, wait a minute, both of you guys are Americans, and we don't want to simply sit in our anger and frustration and emotion and lose sight of the fact that we're all trying to provide for our families, we're all trying to build our businesses, we're all trying to educate our children. And right now, the politics and the media do not contribute to this honest debate. And that's what nine-tenths of this book is about. Another question from our audience. There, right there. Your book talks about how polarized our country is and how we can't really have a debate. Samuel Huntington in The Clash of Civilizations says that uh, trying to have a, one political structure over two or more cultures like that is impossible. And he uses Turkey as an example. Do you think if we continue to be this polarized that we'll continue to be able to have one political structure? Well, this is a, I think you know more than you're saying, because uh, this is a very hot topic in political circles right now. Is this a prime moment for a third party in American life? You can go back to John Anderson, 1980. You can go back, I guess, come forward to uh, Ross Perot, uh, your fellow Texan, uh, and the challenge that he had for George H.W. And then, of course, you come forward to Ralph Nader uh, in 2000. And the question is, let's say that the Republican Party nominates Mitt Romney. Is it a moment where the Tea Party folks, someone like a Sarah Palin, could emerge and really have a substantial third party presence that would challenge? Remember, Perot got 19% of the vote. That's, that's pretty good. It's un unprecedented. And remember that Nader made a huge difference that Al Gore would have been pre president without Ralph Nader in that contest. What about Sarah Palin or anybody else who would represent a position at variance with the established parties who would just seem so much driven by the right-wing base and the left-wing base? 
And I think it goes beyond Sarah Palin. I think that there are a number of people out there who would say, I am interested in a third party where people are willing to talk to each other and compromise. The question is, who would represent this? Where would you get the energy for this? The, I mean, it's the same problem that I was discussing in answer to the first question. The political bases get excited by extreme language. The audiences for the radio shows, the TV shows, the movies, you know, it's like reading the Wall Street Journal editorial page, the New York Times editorial page, one side or the other. That's how you draw people into the tent. But how do you draw people into the tent if you say, you know what, I'm simply interested in solutions to major American problems, and I'd like to have a discussion with you, and I'd like to be able to share the facts with you. The other day in Washington, uh, Senator Kyle said in his discussion about Planned Parenthood in opposition to giving them any funding, he said 90% of what Planned Parenthood does is abortion. Well, then the reporters did some research, came back to him and said, but Senator, that's not true. Uh, in fact, it's less than 10% of what they do, to which Senator Kyle responded, well, I didn't mean it as a fact. Well, <laughs> well I'm glad you guys laughed, because that's what I, I was like, wow, what is he talking about? He didn't mean it as a fact, you know, and it reminds you of that old Daniel Patrick Moynihan thing about we can argue opinions, but we shouldn't argue facts. So what if there was a party that said, you know, we're the fact-based party, we're the party that's actually looking out for America, and I'm your guy, or I'm your woman. I'll stand here and I'm gonna to talk to you about what I genuinely believe is best for our nation. I don't know if, you know what, uh, I forget, someone in this room in, in the reception said to me, the best people aren't even running for office these days. Who wants to be a part of this? So how would you get high-quality candidates who are credible to make this pitch, and who would put money into them? I mean, remember, it's a whole system, it's a structure. I think part of the reason it's so hard to have an honest debate is there's so many advocacy groups, so many lobbying groups, so many political organizations that in fact benefit from the fact that you're not allowed to say what's on your mind at the moment, that you have to adhere to one position or another. Are you a good Republican or are you a rhino, a Republican in name only? That kind of thinking is what's clogging the system. But anyway, your question's right on target. Lots of people in top political circles, and what I mean by that is people who are running the campaigns right now, think that this is an opportunity for a third party. I should go to this side of the room. Here's a question. Mr. Williams, um, what would you say to the possibility that Part of the reason why people are not open to true, honest debate is they're not open to the fact that their belief system or whatever the point, the topic, they might actually learn something and realize that what they believed all along was completely false. Do you think that could be part of the reason why people don't want to be open to that honest debate? You know, this is, to me, psychology. Um, and what you see is, of course, everybody's comfortable believing that they're right uh, about whatever their belief is. And I don't think that's changed over the years. I think what has changed is that there's more of a delight in demonizing the other now, that there's more stereotyping of people with whom you disagree, and more of a delight in seeing them skewered and uh, caricatured. I think that's part of the 
way that we talk now. Um, and it's troubling to me because I think it's really important that in the way that people learn about the world, that they are open to hearing stories about people who have different life experiences, different pressures on them, um, and different political points of view, so that you understand what other people are like. Because this is a very diverse, fragmented society we live in the United States these days. Gosh, you know, there's more diversity in terms of it than ever before. More, you know, the majority of the workforce now is made up of women. Majority of the people graduating from college are women. Uh, this is a different country. And yet you have people who get locked into, well, this is not the country I grew up in, or people who are locked in on the other side, the country's not changing fast enough. So some people say the country's changing too fast, others not changing fast enough. And people are looking for reassurance in this environment. And they're oftentimes, as I suggested to you, willing to say the other guy's a bad guy, or the other guy is different, the other guy's not to be trusted, whatever. I think part of this has to do also with Bar Barack Obama as president. I think for a lot of people, it's still a huge shift to have Obama there. I think when you get into arguments about where he was born, is he a Muslim, uh, you know, is he a socialist, all this, and you can hear some tapes of Sean and I running through the crowd's heads here. Um, you know, I think it's nuts. I just think, and again, I don't think it facilitates the real discussion about serious policy differences you might have with this president, which are totally legitimate. But that's what's going on, and I think it's very much, um, very troubling to me is the way I would put it to you. Because again, it means that you can't sit down next to somebody and say, well, here's what I'm, here's what I'm thinking. It means that you know, you hear it at the highest levels from a President Obama. He refuses to use the word terrorism. Instead, he and Janet Napolitano want to talk about man-made disasters. Man-made disaster, please, you know. I mean, there's a reality here. There's a real problem with radical Islam and terrorism. And let's, I mean, look around the world, from Madrid to, to uh, Indonesia to here in the United States. Let's have an honest conversation. But this goes on if you want to talk about the war in Afghanistan. The people will say, especially after what happened this week, oh, no, we have to win that war. So well, what does it mean to win that war to you? We've been there 10 years. How much have we spent? Well, it's unpatriotic to question the war. Well, no, not. I'm a patriot, but I have questions about this policy. Can I talk about them with you without being put down? I think that's why um, there is this burning sensation in the American psyche right now to get away from this, to say, no, you know what? I want to be my own person. I want to be my own mind. I want to speak my piece here. There, we should be allowed to do it. Thank you very much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.